you have a Bible or Bible app, uh, turn to me with, uh, to John 12, 20 to 34. Um, the title of this is If I Be Lifted Up. As if you were, have been following along in the book of John, we're now coming to the point where the, they are at the Passover feast and Jesus has uh, raised Lazarus from the dead and there's a lot of excitement. And not only the Jews uh, were following, but there is some others uh, who were uh, perhaps uh, uh, converted uh, Greeks who wanted to find Jesus and wanted to know him. Everybody wanted to get a hold of Jesus. So I'll uh, start. I'm just going to read this through. It'll probably be up there too. Now, there were some Greeks among those who went up to the wor worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it. Well, anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who honors me or serves me. Now my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was from this very reason that I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said that it, some said it had thundered. Others said that an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. The crowd spoke up. We've heard from the law that the Messiah will live and remain forever. So how could you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? When I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. So here we are, coming not only to the climax of the life and ministry of Jesus, we are actually approaching the climax of human history. Jesus is revealing his intent to go on the cross and thereby redeem mankind. Everything in the universe, if you think about it, has been building up to this point in preparation for this moment. And everything will be different after this. 1 Corinthians um, 1.18 says, The word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness. But to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Let's pray. Father, we, um, we have gotten a glimpse of the wonder and the beauty of the cross, and yet we probably just have a very, very small sliver of understanding. I pray that you would open our eyes, open our hearts to understand and to see a greater revelation this morning. Somehow by your spirit, work a greater revelation of your, of your glory of the cross, of the, the, the depth of 
of, uh, of power and of profound meaning of the work of the cross, of your work and what you have done and what you are doing and what you will do in our hearts. Amen. So I'm going to paint the setting for you, and I would like you to, and I, I don't think I've ever, um, I've gotten to preach over the years, I don't think I've ever um, given a message that I, I'm doing, going to do in this way. A lot of it is, is kind of narrative. I, I want you to go with me as I'm going to talk through some of the scripture as if it's happening. I want to encourage you to, uh, in a sense, put yourself in that place and to let yourself be one of the followers or one of the disciples who he's responding to. And think about what would you be thinking and what would you be understanding. So here's a setting. Large crowds have gathered for the Passover feast. And there's a mix of fear and wonder and anticipation that's at a fever pitch. Jesus has been working signs and wonders, teaching his disciples and proclaiming the good news for three years. And he's recently raised Lazarus from the dead. His popularity is at an all-time high. Everybody wants to touch him. Everybody wants to see him, even the Greeks. He rode into Jerusalem just recently on a donkey, and the people treated him like a conquering king, placing palm branches in the pathway, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is the king of Israel. And this is Passover week, the yearly celebration, celebrating the time in Israel's history where the angel of death passed over the homes of all of those who had placed the blood of the pure lamb. Many of the Jews were, were hoping that this might be the promised Messiah who could deliver them from the oppression of the Roman government and their occupation. Meanwhile, the Romans are standing by, ready to crush any hint of rebellion or uprising. And the Jewish leaders, they're both jealous of Jesus' growing popularity, but also fearful that he may be leading the people against the law and against their authority. The Pharisees exclaim, look how the whole world has gone after him. What are we going to do? The high priest has just prophesied unknowingly, suggesting it is better for you. Is it not better for you that one man die for the people than for the whole nation to perish? And now some Greeks want to see Jesus. Perhaps they want to see some miracles. Will he raise someone else from the dead? Maybe they want to hear his wise teaching, or maybe he's going to free Israel from the Romans. But strangely, in the midst of all this, Jesus just wants to talk about something about to happen. He says the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. He tells us the fact that if a kernel of wheat dies and falls to the ground, it will produce many seeds. We know that, Jesus. But how does that relate to you? When are you going to come and do some miracles? When are you going to establish your government that Isaiah said would never end? And then even more disturbing, Jesus says this. Now my heart is troubled. Jesus, I'm, I'm counting on you saving, uh, I, I'm counting on you saving me from my troubles. How can you be troubled? 
Then Jesus seems to be wrestling with his emotions. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? Doesn't he know what to do? And suddenly he firmly resolves the question, no, it was for this very reason that I came in this hour. He then concludes with the cry of his heart, Father, glorify your name. Now my heart is troubled. I want to pause in this narrative for a moment. I definitely wanted to focus on, on the picture of the cross and the meaning of the cross, and I was almost going to skip over this little piece of the narrative about him saying he was troubled. And then it, and then it hit me how, how we, we skip over that so often, but how profound that was, how amazing that is. This is incredible. Jesus, the one who created the heaven and earth with the word, the one who was sent from the Father to save the world, is troubled? And he seems to not only be troubled, he seems to be struggling with what to do, which way to turn. How incredibly human. How incredibly like us. Is anybody here, I mean, honestly, we all have troubles. Is anybody here in this season been very troubled? This recent season been very troubled. Well, we're not always there. But Diana and I have been at a level of trouble, a level of anguish that I would say can only be matched by one other time in our marriage, in our 38 years of marriage. This has been a very, very hard season. Now, Eugene Peterson in the message translated this way, right now I am shaken. And what am I going to say? Father, get me out of this? No, this is why I came in the first place. I'll say, Father, put your glory on display. So seeing Jesus in this emotional turmoil is not the only time we see this. A few days later in the Garden of Gethsemane, he sweats drops of blood in his struggle. And rather than a quick resolve, he literally cries out, if it's possible, would you take this cup of suffering away? Yet not my will, but your will be done. And then the cross, few day, the, the next day, experiencing not only the pain, but the full weight of humanity's sin, and maybe even more devastating, for the first time in eternity, experiencing separation from intimacy with the Father. And he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? First Peter 2, 21 to 25 says, He is our example that should, so that we should follow in his steps. So we know Jesus is our example of love. He's our example of faith. He's our example of obedience to God's laws. Here, though, he's an example of how to respond in time of trouble. When the walls are crashing in, when we don't want to have to go through the pain that's in, that's in front of us, how do we respond? I'm not going to take the time, nor could I even tell you everything that Diane and I have been going through. 
but it's been excruciating. Just trust me, it's been excruciating. And a few people know some of the, some of the details, probably not the whole full weight of it. There has been times, numerous times over the last few months where we have felt confused, broken, felt like giving up. Even a few times we just hoped that the Lord would take us home. And I'm not being overly dramatic with that. Jesus tells us that every day, <laughs> to not worry about tomorrow because every day has enough trouble of its own. It's one of those promises that most Christians don't claim. You know, yes, Lord, I stand on that promise. But, it, but how true is it? Every day has trouble. But there are times, there are seasons where we are, where Jesus was to some degree. We are at that place where we are having to wrestle with God, and he tells us how, to, how we do this. Number one, he's transparent with others. He tells, uh, it turns out there's a crowd there. And they're, asked, they're wanting something different from him, the wise teachings or the healings or something else. And what does he do? He confesses. He expresses his struggle. We need to let some people know, not maybe everybody, we need to let some people know when we're struggling. I'm really hurting. Diane and I have found, and I, I do marriage counseling, and we found just recently one of the most powerful things that we have learned how to do with each other is just be vulnerable and transparent about what we're going through. And, just, and sometimes she says, or I just say, I'm really hurting right now. It's not your fault. I'm not blaming you. I'm just really irritable, or I'm really, I'm really hurting. We've had times not of tears just running down our face. We've had times of wailing. Have you been there? What do we do? Well, Jesus, one thing he did is he shared with his disciples. Here he shares with his followers. He's transparent. The second thing he does is he honestly wrestles with God. God, what do you want? And even in the garden, God, would you please take this away? But he wrestles. But his ultimate, the heart of his heart is he wants to be faithful to the Father. He wants to obey. Not my will, but yours be done. And finally, he resolves to embrace God's call in that hour to obey and give glory to God. As Job said, though he may slay me, yet I will hope in him. Many of the things in our lives, and I'm talking about Diane and I, maybe you can relate, are broken, seem broken. And some of it, quite honestly, as we wrestled, is, is a result of our own doing, which is the hardest thing. Some of it is not. Most of it is not, I should say. But some of it is. But you know what? Jesus hasn't changed. He hasn't changed. He is still the answer for the world today. So, Here's what we've decided. Like Jesus, we've chosen 
to stick with the plan, to stick with the Father. We've chosen to double down on Jesus. Sometimes you just have to choose. No matter what the circumstances, no matter how my life has turned out, no matter what is going on, I'm staying with this. Because the disciples said, when everybody was leaving Jesus, they said, are you going to go too? Seemed like an open question. And they said, well, almost like, yeah, we would, but where else would we go? Only you have the words of life. What we need is more of Jesus. I was talking to a close friend just a few days ago who's so disillusioned with what they see in the church and their, their experience is so disillusioned that, that she's, she's miserable but also feeling like the church or God hasn't given her what has been promised. And I challenged her. I said, if you listen to the 10 things that you're disappointed about, I would, I, would, I would wager that the vast majority of the things are not because of Jesus. It's not because of his ways, maybe because of some of his people. But, but, it's, but what you desire is what Jesus desires too. And what he, he lived as an example. In the Walters household recently, there's two of us, by the way. So it's just talking about Diane and I. Um, when we look at the struggle, um, so here's, there's been a regular pattern. And I want you to listen to this. Because this deals with this idea, what do we do? When we look at the struggles in the culture or in the lives of people we love, when our focus is, is how in the world are we going to fix things. The small things, the big things, whatever. How are we going to fix it? How are we going to get it straight? We spiral into despair, confusion, anxiety, and depression. Can anybody relate? However, and this has been done repeatedly this last six months, out of survival, often when we're in, a, in looking in the Word, when we look to him, when we fix our eyes on him, when we take up his yoke, and when we seek God and say, what is your yoke, God? You said it's easy. It doesn't feel easy. When you choose to follow his ways, let go of the, the, the outcomes, let go of the consequences, we go of everything else and just follow his ways, that suddenly there's freedom. Circumstances haven't changed. But suddenly there's freedom. Because his word that says, I came to give life and to give it to the full or give it more abundantly is still true. It's still true. It always will be true. It's about aligning ourselves with that. It may not fix what we see. It may not fix other people that we love. But the word is true. So we're doubling down on Jesus. And what we find is that not only do we get freedom, not only do we get a little glimpse of hope, but we also know that the best thing we could do for the people we love is to bring them the presence of God. To bring them truth and bring them faith and bring them hope and to love them through it, whatever they're going through. Now let's return to the narrative. When I am lifted up, Jesus continues to reveal what's coming. He tells the crowd, 
Now is the time for judgment on this world, and the prince of the world will be driven out. Perhaps at this point, the crowd was getting excited. Yes, Lord, drive out the Romans. Get him out and bring judgment on the evildoers. Then Jesus suddenly says something shocking, even more shocking than I'm troubled. Yet so clear they can't dismiss it as some vague metaphor. He says, but when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. The reference may not be clear to us, but we learn from John that Jesus said this to indicate what kind of death he was going to die. Then it confirmed it even further. He said, we have the reaction, um, we, we have the reaction from the crowd. How is he saying the Son of Man will be lifted up if the scriptures say the Messiah will live forever? So they, they seem to get it. That when he said, if I be lifted up, or the Son of Man be lifted up, they seem to get it that that meant death. Okay? Now, it's not very clear, we're not sure, but it's possible that being lifted up may have been a phrase, common phrase um, back then, because crucifixion was so common and so visible. I learned a, a dis disturbing fact that many years before um, uh, Christ, that the crucifixion, at one point there was a rebellion in the Roman uh, Empire with slaves and gladiators that was partially successful. And then the Romans came down to, dis to crush it, which they did. And they crucified 6,000 people at the same time. 6,000 crosses along the road left there for months. So the phrase, if I am lifted up, people got it. But also, the concept of being lifted up was deeply rooted in Jewish history. Jesus tells Nicodemus in um, John 3.14, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. So, to understand this idea of being lifted up, we need to look at this deeper meaning um, of the snake in the wilderness. So, Numbers 21 tells us the time when the people of God in the wilderness started grumbling against Moses and God. He had set them free from slavery, brought them through the Red Sea, provide miraculous food and water every day. But instead of being thankful... They cursed Moses and God for bringing them there. So God sent a judgment. Poisonous snakes. Anyone bitten would die. And then they repented and cried out for mercy. God is a God of justice, hence the snakes. He's also a God of mercy. So he gave Moses a provision for healing, and here's what it was. Strange. And I remember for years reading it, but I like, this, uh, this is weird. Because there's not supposed to be graven images worshipped, right? And so God says, make a graven image. Make a, break an um, a, a image of a, of a snake, a bronze snake or something, and put it up on a pole and lift it up. So if anyone's bitten, what they do is they turn and they, all they have to do is they look at the snake. Very strange. But think how simple this was. All they had to look at that. But what are they looking at? They're looking at a symbol of what? Of judgment and a reminder of their sin. There's no need to, um, of, of bringing offerings or, or acts of righteousness or a complicated ritual. They simply looked, just looked up, and that would produce healing. 
Now, it turns out that snake lifted up was a foreshadow of Jesus on the cross. Just as the blood of the perfect lamb spread over the doorframe in the Hebrew homes during the Passover was pointing to the cross. Just as the yearly sacrifice of a goat by the high priest in the day of a, a yearly day of atonement was pointing to the cross. Just as a ram caught in the thicket as a substitution for Abraham's only son was pointing to the cross. In fact, even the prophetic curse on the serpent in the Garden of Eden, you will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head, is looking forward to the cross. And then John the Baptist, we know, said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that time, that prophetic moment that all of history had been marching towards was now here. In the greatest plot twist of the greatest story ever told, Jesus, the Messiah, the long-awaited conquering king, was going to destroy the works of darkness and start a revolution with the most powerful weapon ever formed. What's the weapon? Sacrificial love. No greater love, Jesus said, than to one lay down his life for his friends. The method was the cross. And the only solution to satisfy justice, divine justice, and divine mercy at the same time. Now, this is so light in comparison, I've hesitated to tell you this, but, um, but it, it, it gets a glimpse at, at how this is supposed to impact us. I had an athlete. I was a track coach for years. I had an athlete. Uh, his name is Brian Washington. And Brian um, was uh, a kid from a, um, a home that was, uh, never knew his dad, brother was in a gang and so forth. Um, he, 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 was a, he was a wonderful kid, wonderful heart, but also had a, had a temper and, and um, had, his own, had his own mindset on things and he, and he would get easily upset at the time. And so he, was a, he did the triple jump, he did the 100 and the relay. And the sprint coach, we had one day we did hard sprint workouts, and the sprint coach had he and all the sprinters and all the, the jumpers do eight 200s. And the way it would usually work is they would run the first two, three, two or three 200s pretty fast, and then they were really exhausted. And then by the fourth one, they were throwing up, and kids would start disappearing into the bathroom, whatever, we'd have to chase them out, you know. And they, they would be tempted to quit. But Brian, most of them would just get through the workout. And the rule was, if you don't finish a workout and you're on varsity, you don't compete. That's the law, Walter's law. Brian didn't get why he needed to do eight 200s when he runs the 100 and he does the triple jump and the high jump. And he just said, I'm not doing it after the fourth one. And the sprint coach finally told me, he said, I can't do anything with this kid. You deal with him. He said, what's going on? He said, I'm not doing it. I, it doesn't make any sense. I'm not doing eight 200s. I'm done. I said, well, then you can't compete. He said, well, I, I, don't, I don't care. It's stupid. And I thought about it. I okay, listen, I kind of understood where he's coming from. I said, Brian, I can, we can't let you get away with it. And then why would anybody else do it? Nobody really wanted to do it. And I'm thinking, what am I going to do? And, and I'm saying this not to say that I'm such a smart coach, but I had this thing in the back of my mind called the gospel. <laughs> and so, so I said, so, hmm. So I'll tell you what, Brian, you can't get out of this. But I'll tell you what, I'll take you home. And I'll do the last four 200s with you. 
would you do that? He said, you do that? I said, are you going to jog him? I said, no, I'm going to run him hard. You have to stay with me. <laughs> now, that was years ago, but I could kind of stay with him. Okay. <laughs> and so, so, so we did this. He stayed on the team. And I have had 10,000 students and athletes in the course of my teaching and coaching career. There's only a handful that I still am in touch with, that, that stayed in touch with me. For years, he called my wife every Mother's Day. We just got a call from him this spring. He's, he's been helping to coach track in Georgia, and, and his team that he's helping just won a state title. But he repeatedly has been involved with our lives, and he keeps talking about me and the girls coach and my father and the impact they had. And one of the things he probably will never forget, the day I applied the gospel truth, of holding the justice, but also with love, with mercy, of taking myself and putting myself in his place that seemed to touch him at a deep level. That's what the gospel is supposed to do to us. It's supposed to motivate us. It's supposed to drive us. See, the scripture says all have fallen short uh, of the glory of God, all have sinned, and the wages of sin is death. God's holiness and justice demands a penalty to be paid but God's mercy and love desires all men and women to be saved. But the only fully acceptable sacrifice is a pure spotless lamb. And who can qualify? The only one who can qualify, of course, is the one who doesn't need to pay any debt. So the magical solution to this conundrum is the gospel. He who knew no sin became sin for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. On the cross, perfect justice, perfect love, meet. Perfect justice, perfect love, meet. It's the most incredible Truth, the most incredible story, the most incredible drama. And the only thing we have to do, the work is done. It is finished, Jesus proclaimed. The work is finished. The only thing we have to do is respond. It's what the Israelites who were bidden did. We simply have to look up and receive what he has done, accept what he has done. It's a free gift for all of us who know we've been bitten by sin. Sin's poison is coursing through our veins. And by the way, it's just because we have looked up and received Christ and have the work of God in us has not eliminated that poison totally, has it? So we have to continue to come, not to regain salvation, but continue to come to receive because the cross is meant for salvation, also for transformation. We need to keep coming, keep coming, keep coming for cleansing, but for his power of transformation. Jesus told Nicodemus that everyone who looks up to or believes in the Son of Man when he is lifted it will be born again and get eternal life in him. So when we look to the cross, we should see two things. One, God's holiness. 
God cannot wink at our sin. If we have even a, even a glimpse of how um, our careless words and selfish actions have wounded others, we would shudder. We would agree that our sin is worthy of death. God cannot allow the poison of hell to corrupt the beauty of his kingdom. So we need to be cleansed. And the second thing we should see is God's love, his incredible love. He took the penalty, all of it, past, present, and future on his shoulders. If we look at the cross, truly gaze and take in his holiness and his love, we'll not only be saved for eternity, but we begin the journey as a new creature, free from shame and sin, compelled by the love of God, like Brian Washington, but a thousand times more. It should drive us to gratefulness, but drive, drive us also to want to follow, to want to follow, to want to sacrifice whatever we need to. Looking to the cross is the birthing point for every child of the kingdom. But it's also a daily need for the children of light as we continue to lay down our burdens and seek to be transformed into his likeness. We're going to sing a worship song, and during that time, I want to encourage you to grab the communion um, elements and uh, come back to your seat. And um, I'd just like to let you, I'm going to pray a moment, and uh, just let the Spirit touch you, um, let you do work, as the scripture says, of examining your heart to both receive with gratefulness and also to repent. Lord God, we just um, ask that you would help us to fully grasp the wonders of your cross, the wonders of your work as we worship you and receive your communion. So as we're worshiping, go ahead and grab those and then I'll um, come back in a moment and uh, lead you through that.